But I'd encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 21. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 16. Acts chapter 21, I'll begin by reading from verse 1. So brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, Leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the spirits, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind a man who owns the, this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Well, today we're going to be talking about discerning the Lord's will. Discerning the Lord's will. And this passage that we have read is a is rather an obscure one. Uh, but it is a challenging text to interpret. But it's also a practical one as we consider God's word. Because at the end of the day, we want to be in the position where we can say like the believers at the end of this chapter, let the will of the Lord be done. Now, the reason why I bring up the idea of discerning God's will is because the Apostle Paul here in this passage is put into a a rather difficult position, a situation where he's been told twice by believers not to go to Jerusalem. That's found in verses 4 and 12. And some Bible teachers and scholars argue that it was not God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem, and that it was a mistake or even sinful for Paul to go to Jerusalem. Well, is that the case, though? Well, from this passage, 
we're going to learn about a unique, and perhaps a messy, process of discerning the Lord's will. A unique and a messy process of discerning God's will. But before we get into the passage, it is important to establish a basic definition of God's will. What is God's will? What are we talking about here? Uh, to put it very simply, it means God knowing God's plan, knowing God's purpose, and knowing God's intention for our lives. And all Christians should desire to do the will of God. And you see, I never met a Christian in my life who says to me, I, I refuse to do the will of the Lord. No, you don't, you don't hear the, such a thing. Well, at least I don't. However, the challenge for most Christians is not knowing exactly what God's will is for their lives. But just, let me just tell you today that you can know God's will for your life. You see, one of the categories for God's will is God's revealed will. What this means is that God has already made known to all of us what his will is. God did not keep it a secret for us to somehow decipher and to just to figure out on our own. God's revealed will is revealed in the Bible, is evident. And here are examples and scriptural evidence for you to look at. God's will is for you to be sanctified. God's will for you is to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks to all circumstances. God's will for you is to live a godly life by doing good. God's will for you is to do what is pleasing to Him and to understand His will as revealed in the Bible. God's will for you is to suffer for doing good rather than doing evil. And God's will for unbelievers, those who are not Christians, is to be saved. But what about discerning God's will in making everyday decisions in life? See, the Bible has clear principles, actually, and commandments and wisdom to offer us when we make decisions. The Bible is also clear about what God forbids. You know, for example, who should I marry? You see, the Bible is clear that Christians, those who are born again Christians, should only marry Christians, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, we're not to be unequally yoked with, a non with non-believers. So if you're a Christian, don't pray that God will give you a non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend. You, know, you, you may say, well, that person's nice, but no, no, no. Don't pray for that because that's not God's will. That's outside God's will. But what about my vocation? What should be my vocation? Well, should you be a thief? Should you be a loan shark that exploits the vulnerable? Should you be a drug dealer? Should you seek prostitution? No. You see, those vocations are forbidden in Scripture, right? See, any job, if it's not sinful and unethical, is honoring to God if God is our ultimate master. See, God's word provides clear guidance on those major decisions in life. We just need to understand and follow the Bible's commandments and principles. Now, there may be another category called God's personal will. God's personal will. So here's a scenario, okay? A scenario of me counseling a young man. And a young man says to me, Well, Pastor, I know the 
what the Bible teaches, and I'm doing my best to follow God's word. And what what about the very specific things in my life? Now, how should I discern God's will on the very specifics? Something that is rather morally neutral, so to speak. Now, for example, going back to the dating scene, you know, should I date girl A or marry girl A and girl or girl B? You see, both Christ, both are born again believers, and they both love the Lord. It's morally neutral, so it's not wrong to date girl A and girl B because they're both Christians. You know, you know, Pastor, I'm confident that. You know, both of them will say yes to me if I ask one of them out. And my response is, well, do you have preferences? Do you like tall girls, short girls? Do you have a preferred ethnicity? Do you like someone who knows how to cook? What about similar hobbies? And if you're still indecisive, flip a coin. Flip a coin. Girl, head is girl A, tail is girl B. Go for it. But of course, it's not as simple as that. So there's some challenges and complications. But so, but there's just many of those similar examples, right? Those specific things, you know, like deciding on what, deciding your major in college. If for those of you who are students here, uh, what about the decision to take a job in in, in one city or or job B in another location? So see, there's many such decisions where we need to know how to discern God's will. On the specific things, and so that is just an introduction, an illustration of what I'm trying, to, what we're talking about here, when it, we come to this passage of scripture. And hopefully, by the grace of God, I'll be able to communicate clearly what God wants to teach us from this passage regarding His will for the Apostle Paul. So that we begin the exposition of God's word, found in verses one to three. See, Paul and his companions. They continue their journey to Jerusalem after leaving Miletus, and we recall in the previous passage that Paul gave a farewell or parting message to the Ephesian elders, and and the apostle Paul here is heading towards Jerusalem, and it was an emotional scene as you remember, and the elders accompanied as he as Paul boarded the ship. And here, first one begins by saying, "And when we had parted from them, and set sail." See, the Greek word for "parted from them" can also mean to be torn apart. This shows a rather emotional drama of being separated from good friends, close friends, loved ones, being torn apart. And Luke here gives. As a glimpse of Paul's travel from one location to another, sailing from Kos and then to Rhodes, and then stopped at Patera for a little bit until they're able to find a ship. So I know this was small here, but they go, they they went from here, from Miletus here, all the way down to Patera, and eventually go all the way sail to Phoenicia, to Tyre. And so they cross all the way to the region of Phoenicia, which is now called Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon, and they landed in the city at the city of Tyre. And in Tyre, Paul went to seek out the disciples and stay with them for seven days. And what's fascinating is that in the book of Acts, we don't explicitly see 
gospel ministry being done entire. And the same goes to the city of Ptolemais in verse 7. However, we are given a hint in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, where it says, Luke says to what records for us, and now those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen travel as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. And so when the believers in Jerusalem were persecuted by Saul, who is now the Apostle Paul, they dispersed to different locations, different places. They, go, they went all the way to Phoenicia, and they also ministered, most likely ministered in the city of Tyre and Ptolemais. So this will suggest that the advancement of the gospel went beyond what's recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. And this suggests that it wasn't only the apostles who did the work of ministry and evangelism, but that all believers are to be devoted to spreading the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the world. And now, look at verse 4 here. While staying with them for seven days, these disciples through the Spirit were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And twice in this passage that Paul was not to go to Jerusalem. It's mentioned again in verse 12. You can look at it in your own Bibles. And so, after staying entire for seven days, you can imagine that the disciples tried persuading Paul. However, Paul and his companions are so determined to press on to their, in their journey to Jerusalem in verses 5 to 6, and we are giving another scene that is rather similar to the Ephesian elders. See, Luke notes that the disciples at Tyre with wives and children accompanied the team until Paul and his companions were outside of the city. And that's how the pagans did it back in those days, when they, they would usually accompany their loved ones until they reached outside of the border of the city, and they would say farewell to them. It's kind of like in the airport. You walk with your loved ones all the way to the gate, and then you wave your farewell as they go past custom. But Luke and Paul and others not only did that, but what the pagans didn't do is that they prayed. But here, Paul and Luke and those guys, they kneeled down on the beach and they prayed and said farewell to one another, something that the pagans would not do. And so Paul and his companions sailed to Ptolemais from Tyre and stayed with the Christians for one day, and afterwards they went to Caesarea and entered into the house of Philip. They enter into the house of Philip. And we remember Philip, the evangelist, back in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 8. He was one of the seven deacons chosen to take care and manage the finance for the Hellenist widows back in Acts chapter 6. And the last time we saw him was at the end of Acts chapter 8 after he evangelized to the Ethiopian eunuch. And afterwards, he was in Caesarea, most likely evangelizing to the lost, and after many days, he still remained in that city. And we are told that Philip had four unmarried daughters who were virgins, and they, were all, and they also prophesied. This assumes that Philip was a ma married man, and he has a wife, and his daughters were able to prophesy. They were prophetess with the gift of prophecy. 
I take prophecy to mean direct revelation about the future from God. And interestingly enough, they didn't prophesy to Paul regarding his future in Jerusalem. Luke just simply states that they prophesy. That's it. And after staying with Philip for many days, a a prophet named Agabus shows up. He went to Caesarea from Judea. And if you remember, he was the same prophet Agabus back in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. And now he gives a message from the Holy Spirit of what will happen to Paul when he is in Jerusalem. And Agabus performed a symbolic act to communicate his message, just like the prophets in the Old Testament. If you ever read the Old Testament prophets, sometimes the prophets did some very weird symbolic acts, uh, such as, you know, if, just give you one weird example, and that is Isaiah. He preached naked for three years. You can look at it in Isaiah chapter 20. But that's just one of the examples, okay? And so here, Agabus took Paul's belt, which is not made of leather, but it's usually made of cloth, okay? And essentially, Paul will be the one who will be bound and arrested and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. It's, it's a similar revelation given to Paul by the Holy Spirit back in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 23, where Paul said to the Ephesian elders, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. And how did the audience respond? Interestingly enough, in verse 12, notice the we here. Notice the we here. When we had heard this, we and the people there urged them not to go to Jerusalem. So who's the we here? This would include Luke, the author of the book of Acts. Luke and his companions. And they started to urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, now why did they start pleading Paul at this point? Uh, why didn't they just do it earlier when they're entire? Why didn't they do it when Paul gave the speech to the Ephesian elders? Shouldn't they have known? Why this point? I don't have the answer. Maybe it's because Agabus was the prophet, and so maybe Agabus created a deeper impression of Paul's situation in Jerusalem. That's a possibility. And so, before we proceed to the, to the next verse, we come back to what I said at the beginning of the sermon. And now it's trying to get really complicated here. In a, in a rather sticky situation, okay? Because some scholars, again, some Bible teachers and scholars argue that it was not God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem and that it was a mistake or sinful for Paul to do so. Now, why do they say that? Why do they say that? Well, look back into verse 4 where it says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, this is a difficult text to interpret. There are differences among Bible scholars on how to properly handle this text. See, from plain reading, it seems like the disciples, through the Spirit, told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So some interpret this to mean that the Holy Spirit gave the disciples a message to Paul not to go to Jerusalem. 
And this, if this were the case, if this were true, then Paul may have sinned and was disobedient to the Holy Spirit. However, we're also given other parts of Scripture, a scenario where the Holy Spirit made known to Paul the suffering that he would experience in Jerusalem. You know, it says in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 23, it says that Paul, he was bound, constrained by the Spirit. In other words, by divine necessity to go to Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, Luke says that Paul resolved in the Spirit to go to this place and that place and eventually go to Jerusalem. And so it seems like the Apostle Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem, but wouldn't that be a contradiction? Wouldn't it be a contradiction if the Holy Spirit revealed to the disciples that Paul was not to go to Jerusalem? So which is it? Did the Holy Spirit tell Paul to go to Jerusalem or not? Is the destination to Jerusalem the Lord's will? And how should we then make sense of verse 4 when it says, through the Spirit? Well, there are two possible interpretations, but one of them has to be correct. First interpretation is that the disciples received a direct revelation from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit commanded Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But I'm not too convinced by this view, because if the Holy Spirit wanted to forbid Paul from going to Jerusalem, then he could have spoken to Paul directly, somehow, just like in his previous experience. You remember back in Acts chapter 16, Verses 16 to 7, it tells us that Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Asia and Bithynia during that, those times. And Paul was ready to obey the Holy Spirit if the, if the Spirit forbid Paul from going. And so he was led by the Spirit. He was in tune with the Spirit. And then when he got the dream, later on in Acts chapter 16, when he got the dream to go to Macedonia, he believed that God called him to go there to preach, and he immediately obeyed. And so that's one of the first, inter- that's the first interpretation, but that's my response to that first interpretation. I don't think that first interpretation is the best way to look at this verse. But there's a second interpretation. This seems more likely the best interpretation. One scholar said that the majority of Bible commentaries lean towards this position. You see, the disciples received a direct revelation, that is, a future event from the Holy Spirit about what would happen to Paul when he goes to Jerusalem. And that's it. But it was up to the believers to interpret that event to discern if it was the Lord's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem. Of course, these believers think, Okay, there's danger to Paul, so that means don't go there. It was a danger for them. And hence, motivated by their concern and love for Paul, they were telling him not to go to Jerusalem. And plus, when you look at verse 11, regarding Agabus' prophecy, the Holy Spirit was consistent in revealing to Agabus the future. Agabus never said that the Holy Spirit told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. 
He simply prophesied what the Holy Spirit said regarding what happens to Paul when he's in Jerusalem. And so, similarly, I don't think we should interpret verse 4 as the Holy Spirit commanding Paul not to go to Jerusalem, but that the Holy Spirit simply made it known to the disciples that Paul would suffer there in Jerusalem. And so based on what we learn about Paul's circumstance, how should we discern and interpret different events and situations in our lives that can align with the will of the Lord as much as possible? And so in the next little while, I'm going to offer you nine lessons. Nine lessons on how to discern the will of the Lord on the, spe- on the specific situations in life based on this text and also other parts of Scripture. And I believe that's the Lord's will for you to learn. So, nine lessons. Are you ready? Okay, there we go. Yeah, okay, there we go. No one has responded, but that's the Lord's will, I guess. So, first, first thing you got to take note of, surrender. Are you surrendering your life to God completely to discern his will? See, did Paul surrender his life to Christ? Yes, absolutely. He's totally sold out for Christ and was willing to die for his sake. Did the Christians in this passage surrender their lives to Christ? Yes, because they are also in tune with the Holy Spirit. And also, or else Luke wouldn't have told us that the Spirit gave them the future events. So furthermore, regarding surrendering, there's not much in seeking the Lord's will if you're not 100% committed to Him. You should not be double-minded in your life. You should not seek to serve yourself while you're trying to serve God. You cannot serve both God and money. You have to be absolutely devoted to Him, 100%. Remember remember what, what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, right? For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? Now, this may seem like a scary idea. The first step may seem like a scary idea from a worldly perspective, but if you want to know God's will and live a meaningful life, you must, you must sign your life away. Give God your blank check. And remember that if you entrust yourself, your life to God, he will take care of you because he's your heavenly father, right? Who loves you and he cares for his children. And plus, if you're not a believer this morning, if you're not a Christian this morning, then the first step in knowing God's will is turning to Jesus Christ and be saved. God does not wish you to perish and end up in eternal condemnation, but that you repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior who died on the cross for sinners and was raised on the third day. And so if you want to discern God's will, if you want to know God's will, that's the first step. You must surrender your life and your future to his sovereign will. So that's the first thing you've got to consider, and that is surrender. Second, study. Are you studying the Bible to know God intimately? We have talked about God's revealed will found in the Word. And plus, the more 
you grow in your relationship with God personally and intimately, you should naturally know what His will is when it comes to decision making. Let me just give you an example in a marriage relationship. So I've been married to Allison for at least seven years. I can know, I can know, I think I, I, I think I can say I know Allison quite intimately. And sometimes I know what she likes and what she doesn't like without her permission or without asking for her for her opinion. I know her will and I know her desires because I know her. So in the same way, knowing God's personal will in a specific situation is very much bound up with knowing God himself. Scripture tells us to delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so I believe that the Apostle Paul knew the Lord really well because he knew the word, he knew the scriptures and what God called him to do. Look back at Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Notice that Paul says that I may finish my course in the ministry, which I think is going to Jerusalem. But who gave him this ministry of going to Jerusalem? It was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He received it from him. So it is important to know God intimately by reading and studying the Bible. And if you're a new Christian, or if you're still feeling spiritually immature, not knowing what, not growing much, then there's no shortcut. There's no shortcut. There's no easy process, process of discerning God's will. You must study the Bible. You must read God's word again and again and pray and seek his will. And most of the time, if you're a new believer, even, old, even those who have been around for a long time, it is also better to seek wise counsel from spiritually mature Christians who know the scripture as well. So you must study the word. Third, scriptural. Scriptural. Are you acting on biblical principles instead of relying on human wisdom to discern God's will? Now, I'm really expanding upon the second point here. But sometimes, despite studying the God's word and despite knowing what he says, we can fall into pragmatism, where we do just do whatever works for a specific situation, or we just fall back into the comfort zone or the status quo without moving towards a complete adherence to the scriptures. We can easily use human, hum, human wisdom instead of biblical principles. Human wisdom can be fueled by fear, anxiety, pragmatism, traditionalism, discouragement, selfishness, worldliness, and pride. But the tricky part about this passage that we have here is who is applying biblical principles? Paul or the disciples? It's possible that both are doing so. For Paul, his principle was to bring the financial funds to Jerusalem so as to bring church unity between Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul was willing to march into the face of danger on the basis of his commitment to this truth. But the disciples could also be applying biblical principles, right? The principle of love and care for Paul's safety. Perhaps they wanted, wanted Paul to wait upon the Lord until the timing is right. Perhaps Paul could have delegated his responsibility to someone else. Both could be valid too. So that's a challenge, the, stick, the sticky situation. 
But we have to remember, is, are we being scriptural here? The fourth point is this, stimulus. Have you searched your motives and desires to make sure that you're glorifying God and not self? See, this is similar to the biblical principle that we just discussed, but this gets into the deeper, this gets deep into the heart level, the heart level. Here's the thing. It is possible to be committed to doing the Lord's will, but your heart and your motive is not in the right place. It's in the wrong place. For example, going on a missions trip or serving a church ministry, are, are, they are a biblical principle, but what's the motive? Why are you doing it? Do you do it because it's out of obligation or chores? Or do you do, do you do it because you have selfish motives or, and that you want to gain something from ministry? Or do you do it because you find joy in serving the Lord in this manner? See, it's so easy to do the right thing, but doing it in the wrong way. So we should examine our hearts. Uh, I can't see what's in your heart. Uh, only the Lord sees and knows your heart. So it's, that's between you and God, really, ultimately. So you've got to ask yourself, am I truly seeking God's glory and not my own? You can pray the Psalms. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the ending of Psalm 139. Next is suggestion. Suggestion. Whose counsel will you listen to and how will you evaluate it for discerning God's will? You see, Proverbs says that without, the counsel, without counsel, plans fail, and, but, but with many advisors, they succeed. See, Paul had many spiritually mature Christians who counseled him at this point. He had Luke and Agabus and other companions. And if I have done my calculation correctly, uh, there would have been at least 10 people in the room unified in telling Paul not to go. Certainly, they're not against him. They're for him. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were spiritually mature. They had concern for him. They had deep love and affection for him. And Paul seems to be outnumbered by those who don't support his journey to Jerusalem, even Luke himself here in this situation. Uh, he seems to be alone now with a lack of support at this moment. You see, the messy part of discerning the Lord's will is which side is right. If I were in Paul's shoes, and I may just have listened to them after evaluating their counsel, right? I may not just not have gone to Jerusalem because, as some have said, as the Proverbs says, there is wisdom in the counsel of many. But perhaps the point is not which side is right, but whether or not you have sought biblical counsel from believers. And, having, and after hearing them, you should evaluate their words and evaluate your thoughts in light of Scripture, going back to the process, you know, studying living out the biblical principles, and so forth. And after seeking counsel, evaluating your motives and your desires, and applying biblical principles, we get to the next one, number six. Survey circumstances. 
survey circumstances? Have you prayerfully evaluated the circumstances in your life to discern God's will? You see, Paul knew his circumstances in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit revealed his will, you know, revealed that to him and Agabus and also the disciples here. Now I'm glad that the Holy Spirit doesn't give us such revelation about our future in our day. You know, if God showed me, at least, the future and revealed to us, revealed to me all the possible circumstances, you know, kind of like the multiverse and the Marvel movies, if you're into those things. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is that if God showed us the future and revealed to us all the possible circumstances for every decision we make, then I think we will be very indecisive. And I think maybe that will be very counterproductive. We won't learn to live by faith and trust in God because I think we may waste our time trying to choose the safest route or the path of least resistance. But God in his providence, he does lead us and he does guide us through circumstances. And you see, imagine you were planning to go to Ukraine as a missionary many years ago and then suddenly the war broke out with Russia. And there's a war in there. And then you're deciding now, okay, should I, go to, should I go to Ukraine as a missionary or not? Is that God's way of warning you not to go? Is that, or is that God's way of testing your obedience? I don't know. You must learn to evaluate the circumstance wisely because circumstances can be interpreted in many ways. Sometimes closed doors do not always mean no. And sometimes open doors do not always mean yes. So we must be wise and careful about surveying the circumstances. Seven, suppression. Would it violate and suppress your conscience? See, conscience is the internal mechanism that God has placed in every person here. It helps us to know what is right and what is wrong. So for Paul, for the Apostle Paul, if he didn't go to Jerusalem, it seems like it would violate his conscience. He says later in Acts chapter 21, verse 1, he says this after he's arrested in Jerusalem, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So it's important to know and evaluate your own conscience, your own heart. Next, eight, sound judgment. Sound judgment. When relying on God and following these steps, are you exercising sound judgment, conscience, and convictions and submitting to the consequences? Ultimately, you must learn to decide which decision best aligns with God's word for yourself, having followed these steps. Should you date girl A or girl B? Should you go to this college or not? Should you move away for a job opportunity? That's really up to you to make that sound judgment. You see, for the Apostle Paul, he was deeply convinced that he must go to Jerusalem. He has the conviction, and he is resolved to do what God called him to do. And so look back in your scriptures, back in Acts chapter 21, verse 13. Look at how he responds to his audience. After all those things that's been happening, we have an emotional scene here. Imagine what's going on in the room. Everyone was telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. 
He's getting all the wisdom. He's getting all the advice that is dangerous to go to Jerusalem. Paul seems to just have had enough. Look at what he says here. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. You see, it can be very difficult for a person to make sacrifices that are uncomfortable for themselves. Especially when the people they care about will be affected and that they will ask them to do something different. See, the, the sorrow shown by Paul's friends was like a heavy blow to his own heart as they tried to convince him not to go. And he, he also feels broke, heartbroken. Not because his friends don't understand why he's going to Jerusalem, but because they are upset here and they're crying because of him. But at the end of the day, Paul says this, he's ready to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus, not for his own name. Plus, it's not a coincidence that this part of the story reflects the life of Jesus. I think, I think that's Luke's intention here. Jesus showed his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. And of course, we know who know. We know who tried to prevent that from happening, right? Peter rebuked Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And what did, Peter, and what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not, for you're setting, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul didn't say that to the disciples. Imagine they said that same, imagine he said the same thing to them, but that's not what he said to them. So at the end of the day, nothing can persuade and convince Paul from living out his conscience and conviction. And so they cease from persuading Paul, and then this then leads to the final step in not only deserting God's will, but doing God's will, and that is sanctify sanctified. And if you're convinced that this decision will glorify God after carefully considering every, all the above, then let the will of the Lord be done. That's what, that's what Paul's companions and friends said. Let the will of the Lord be done. And then the rest of the message here tells us but Paul and his companions went to Jerusalem. There's more that can be said, or maybe I didn't say enough. And I'm not suggesting that this is a magic formula for discerning God's will. But I hope this list will be useful and helpful in assisting you to do the will of the Lord in your life. And all of them, all the points I gave start with an S because I believe they are simple instructions, but not really. So, not really simple, but it's, it's messy. However, ultimately, my, my, my heart for you is that you would glorify God in whatever decision you make so that his will be on earth be done, just like Jesus. 
just like Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before his arrest and death on the cross, he prayed to his father, and he said to him, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew. Jesus knew what he was going to Jesus knew what he, what he was going to go through when he's in Jerusalem and when he's going to be on the cross. And he asked the Father to remove this cup from him. However, the Father did not remove the cup of judgment and wrath that Christ would drink. Nevertheless, Jesus was willing. He, will, he went willingly to the cross to accomplish the will of the Father to save unworthy sinners like you and me. That's what he did. And if you're not, again, if you're not a believer this morning, that is the good news of Jesus Christ. That's how your sins can be forgiven. That's how you can be, have eternal life, is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, turning from your sins, believing in him. Because he is the glorious Savior. He is the glorious Savior whom we serve and worship. And when God saves you, he will transform your heart, and he will cause you to be born again, and he will help you to live out his will. And so here in this passage, we have really a marvelous example from the life of the Apostle Paul in discerning God's will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage that we get to go through. It's not an easy passage, but I pray that we will be able to carefully know what your will is for our lives. It's never simple, never easy. Um, sometimes there can be messy situations in every circumstances, in every case, by case scenario. But ultimately, may our hearts delight in doing your will and in glorifying your name. So I pray that you will help all of us, help everybody who's here in this sanctuary to discern your will for their lives. And I know that everybody, everybody has their own circumstances that they have, they're going through. You know what they are. And we know that God, you're a good God. You're, the, you're a heavenly father and that Jesus, you're the good shepherd and that you will lead your people into the right path. And ultimately, May everybody here be able to, to say at the end of the day, let the will of the Lord be done. And so, so Lord, have your way with us this morning and throughout the rest of the week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.